Hopefully every Christian here this morning is familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Let me just say up front, if you're not familiar with those two verses, you should be. Because what you find in those two verses is Paul making what most believe to be the most important statement in the Bible about the Bible. Those two verses read as follows. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I want you to think about those words for a moment. Those five key statements. God's Word is breathed out and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that you and I as God's people can be equipped for every good work. If those verses describe the function of Scripture, and they do, then I think it's safe to say that Paul's letter to the church at Galatia has served us well. This morning, as I mentioned, this is our 30th and final study of this remarkable New Testament book. And I think all of us would agree, hopefully, that the book of Galatians has taught us much. Fundamentally, at the bottom shelf, this book has taught us about the relationship between faith and good works. And that you and I are to walk by the Spirit. And admittedly, while at this point I can only speak for myself, I can honestly say that I have, through this book, experienced the reproof and correction of the Spirit of God on several occasions. And I hope by God's good grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that I have been better trained in how to live a righteous life. And hopefully what's been true of me is also true of you this morning. Now, I'm fairly confident that it had to have been a dramatic moment when the Christians there in Galatia got word that Paul was sending them a letter. And when you had that world premiere reading of this letter, no doubt the people were just excited beyond words. Word had spread through the community that a courier had brought a letter to by the founding pastor of the churches there in Galatia. And they gathered for the public reading of this letter. And I'm sure that as the the lead elder got up to read this letter to the congregation, there was almost an audible gasp. Because Paul dispenses in this letter with all of the various niceties that he did in previous letters other churches he doesn't start out and say how great they are and how they're advancing and maturing and growing in their walk with Christ Paul in this letter unlike any other New Testament letter gets right to the heart of the issue and he says folks I am absolutely blown away that you have been sucked into some false teaching and for six chapters Paul unloads on them 
He says, I can't believe you've been hoodwinked. You're being lied to. You're being deceived. And then when Paul draws this letter to a close, he writes, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. And maybe, just maybe for emphasis, the lead elder in the church there who was reading this uh, letter that was written on papyrus held it up so that they could actually see firsthand the large print portion of Paul's letter. What had probably happened was simply this. Paul, according to his usual custom, had dictated most of this letter to a secretary, to a, a man who was called an, uh, an amanuensist. And when he came to the end of the letter, he finishes this document with his own handwriting. He personally autographs this letter in order to give this letter the stamp of apostolic authority and a sense of authenticity that this wasn't a forgery. This wasn't written by somebody who was claiming to be the Apostle Paul. This was written by Paul himself. And he writes this final few verses in large, bold letters. He underlined it possibly as he brings to a conclusion this letter. And what you find in this last section of the book is not a hastily written postscript. This is not an afterthought of the apostle who was struggling. Now, you know, how am I going to end this? You know, it's kind of like when John Grisham writes a book. I'm wondering if he says, you know, how am I going to close this one out? Or David Baldacci. You know, what you find in these verses is a summary of the entire letter. You recall that Paul had gotten word that the Christians in these churches that he had founded had drifted away from the truth. And they had placed circumcision over against the cross. And Paul wrote this letter to these Christians who had wandered from the truth. And he says, look, I want to correct you. I have to correct you. I'm your founding pastor. I love you in the Lord. And in this final paragraph, Paul underscores the truth that he had been defending and promoting, namely that justification before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he says as he closes out this letter, because that's true, the grounds and the foundation for a Christian's boasting is not in his good works, it's not in his church membership, it's not in his baptism. The grounds for boasting is in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. And friend, to understand this is to understand the book of Galatians. But it's also, more importantly, to understand what the gospel message is. Now this particular summary at the end of Galatians begins with a, a problem statement. Look at verse 12. This was the problem. Paul says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Friend, that's the, the reason Paul wrote this letter in a nutshell. Now, it's important again that we know the background of this letter. 
Paul, as I've mentioned in the past, after he founded these churches in the Roman region of Galatia, had some Jewish Christians who had come on the heels of Paul's ministry there to do, quote-unquote, follow-up on these converts. These missionaries, whom we've termed as Judaizers, probably came from Jerusalem. And they had a simple message. They said, you know, it's important to preach the cross. It's important to believe in the empty tomb and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Those are all important things. But there's one thing that in addition to that you need to do. And that is you need to engage in the rite of Jewish circumcision. Now you know that in the Old Testament God had commanded that the males of the, of, of the nation of Israel undergo the rite of circumcision. That is, they were to remove the male foreskin as a sign that they belonged to the covenant people of God, the nation of Israel. And these Judaizers, these false teachers, came in and they said that circumcision was still a prerequisite for salvation. And probably their missionary slogan could probably best be summarized by what they were saying in Acts 15.1. Where there they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that was the problem. If you're going to become a Christian, you've got to be circumcised. They were saying that to be a convert to Christianity, you had to become a Jew. Salvation for them meant the cross plus circumcision. And admittedly, while today the issue is not so much circumcision, there is still today on the part of many the temptation to turn the gospel into the cross plus something. It's not just Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's Jesus Christ plus something else. That something else could be a deed or a duty a sacrament or a social cause, a ritual or a creed. And the problem is that you always add a plus to the cross. And Paul's point in this letter is simply this. For the gospel to be the gospel, the cross has to stand alone. And because these Judaizers believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation, they naturally wanted to circumcise as many people as possible. And when they came to Galatia, they pressured Gentile Christians there to be circumcised. And the problem wasn't so much circumcision as was the fact that they were compelling people to be circumcised. There is validity that circumcision is a valid, healthy procedure that a person should undergo. The problem was that these Judaizers were demanding that the Galatians be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, why were they doing that? Well, no doubt they, like many, thought they were doing God's work. But you know, Paul gets right to the root of the problem. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he discerned and he unmasked their real motives for us. 
He says in verse 12, right at the end, he says, the only reason they are doing this, that is trying to compel people to be circumcised, is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Here's the real reason they wanted to avoid persecution. Now, oftentimes when we think of the persecution that the early church endured, we often think of the persecution that they endured at the hands of the Romans. And indeed, they were persecuted, and they did suffer. But it's also very important for us to remember that the first attacks came from the Jews on Christians. For example, Stephen was stoned by the Sanhedrin in Acts 7. Paul, before his conversion, dragged Christians out of their homes and persecuted them. Furthermore, everywhere Paul went, as you read the book of Acts and you study his missionary journeys, you find that Jewish people persecuted him. And the point that I want to make is that some of the most severe persecution that Christians faced came from Jewish people. And as the church spread throughout Asia Minor, Jewish persecution spread and increased with it. But these Jewish Christians that had come to Galatia from Jerusalem realized that there was an easy way to avoid that persecution. And that was force Gentile Christians to be circumcised. What made devout Jews angry was that there were people who were not maintaining the boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were being welcomed by Jews into their home. And they hadn't been circumcised. And that was just, that was just a head popper. I mean, that just blew these people's mind. To mingle as a circumcised Jew with an uncircumcised Gentile was just the worst thing imaginable. And and to sit down at a table and enjoy a meal together with them? Why, that was inexcusable. It was more than they could handle. And so what they did is they said, in order for us to get over that problem, we need to have these people be circumcised. And not only did they urge it, they also demanded it. They were putting the gospel into terms that Gentiles could understand. They were were changing the terms of salvation itself. And their real motive for doing this was, was fear. They were fearful of being persecuted. They were afraid of what other Jews would say and do if they found out that they were worshiping together with uncircumcised Gentiles. They knew that it would be much easier to defend their involvement with Christianity if they could say that these Gentiles in their house church were keeping the law of Moses. And they had agreed to be circumcised. And that that would solve everything. Deep down inside, they were, willing to be pers- they were unwilling to be persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so forcing Gentiles to be circumcised was their way of avoiding persecution. By the way, let me just add that 
that is still a problem today. You see, when you preach the gospel, the good news, that a man is saved by grace alone through faith alone, you can expect persecution. You can expect opposition. Because, friend, that message says that we are sinners under God's curse. And we need someone else to die for our sins. That's telling people who are proud and arrogant and sometimes condescending that there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. And the idea that the only way you can be saved is to trust Christ and Christ alone is going to invite persecution. Have you ever noticed that people generally do not like being told that they are sinners who need a Savior? Most of the time, people like to pat themselves on the back and say, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a remarkable person. I'm, I'm that exception to the rule that all men are sinners and sin separates them from God. And so they don't like being told that. But you know, there's a second reason why they were preaching that. And that is they wanted to seem like they were successful. See verse 12, he says, Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Look at verse 13 specifically. He says, Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised. Notice that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. They realized that the more people that they forced into circumcision, the more people back in Jerusalem would be impressed by their efforts. They wanted to brag about how many converts they were making. I imagine that as they sent back their missionary letter, they would have in bold print right at the top, 100 circumcised. And they were keeping up these, this appearance And here's the problem. Their ministry, if we want to call it that, was all for show. It was all to impress people. Now I want to pause for a moment and camp on this point. Because I'm convinced that showing off is one of the differences between a true and a false religion. It's the difference between a carnal ministry and a spiritual one. One that's driven to please man and one that's under, versus one that's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Listen, false religions always get caught up in externals. Like how big they are. Like attendance figures. Like how much money they bring in. By worship rituals. Mark it down that outward religion is what cult leaders strive for when they continually pressure members to recruit new converts. And what they want to do is they want to entertain rather than edify. They want to base salvation on what people do for God rather than on what God has done for them. Listen, true religion is inward. It starts when the Spirit of God regenerates a sinful heart and then it works its way outward. False religions are external. 
It's something done to the body, to the flesh of the sinful, self-reliant person. True religion is not based on outward works. It's based on an inward transformation of the heart that comes by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the problem, and here's the irony of this and the hypocrisy of these, these false teachers, and that is that while they were compelling everybody to, to be circumcised and to, to follow that ritual, they themselves were unable to keep the law in its entirety. See verse 13 again? He says, Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about you. Friend, the problem with these people is they were hypocrites. It was unfiltered, unmitigated, complete hypocrisy. They were boasting about circumcision because they thought that that made them more righteous. And the problem is, is, is if you're going to you know, jump into the ritual and the rite of circumcision, Paul says you've got to keep the whole law. You need not turn, but look at in, in, in Galatians 3.10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Friend, if you're going to say you've got to be saved by keeping the law, you've got to keep it in its entirety. And on that point, we all fail. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is sin. And the law saves only those who keep it in its entirety, and nobody does. When a person says, I can save myself by my own efforts, they have to keep the law in its entirety. And the truth of the matter is, none of us can measure up. And so the end, Paul says, the problem here is they have nothing to boast about. And that's why Paul opposed these people at every turn. You know what these people were? They were the worst kind of preachers imaginable. They were unwilling to endure persecution for the cause of Christ. They sought glory for their own success. They never practiced what they preached, yet they were telling other people what to do. Don't you hate it when preachers do that? And, and worst of all, by trusting in circumcision rather than in the cross, they denied the free grace of the gospel. And Paul says, if you're going to boast, here's what you need to boast about, Christian. You need to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See verse 14? I love this. This is so good. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, that Greek word for boast is difficult to get a handle on because there's really no equivalent in the English language. Because that word boast means more than bragging and being full of yourself and conceited. That's all the negative. John Stott, I think, does well when he writes this. 
Speaking of boasting, it means to boast in, glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizon, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. I like that. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I'm obsessed, consumed, gripped by the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you stop and think about it, that's really somewhat strange. And it's strange for two reasons. Number one, he refused to live for any of the things that people usually live for. Have you ever noticed what people generally brag about? And we all hate braggarts, don't we? People who are braggarts generally boast about their popularity, their intellect, their influence, their appearance, their income, or their job performance. They boast about their spiritual record. And Paul says, I'm not going to boast about any of those things. I'm not going to boast about my abilities or my accomplishments, which is what people normally take pride in. People forever brag about how much money they have, who they know, and how smart they are. And Paul says when it comes to this issue of boasting, when it comes to the matter of being, well, being a braggart, Paul says, I'm going to brag and boast about the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the second reason that Paul's boasting here is somewhat strange is because what he was willing to boast about, namely the cross of Christ. Now, you need to think with me, okay? I want you to follow the logic here. In the first century... The cross was nearly the ugliest thing imaginable. It was a place of humiliation. The Romans considered the cross a degrading, disgusting, despicable, detestable, and disgraceful object of death. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says that the object of Paul's present boasting was by all ordinary standards of his day the most ignoble of all objects a matter of unrivaled shame and yet here Paul is he's boasting in the first century about the cross friend it would be like you and me today boasting about a rope that was used for lynching a minority. Or boasting about the gas ovens at Auschwitz, where millions of innocent Jews were killed. The very mention or thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day unspeakable horror and loathing. People in the Roman society, out of politeness, never talked about the cross. It was an unmentionable topic. And yet Paul takes what should have been an embarrassment to the early church, a place where the founder of Christianity, like a low-life criminal, had died. And instead of denying it, instead of covering it up, Paul says, I want to advertise it. 
I want to boast about it. The very thing that most people considered too obscene to whisper in polite company, Christians in the first century were broadcasting in the streets. You want to know why? Because the cross is the only thing to boast about because it is the physical, tangible, historical means and demonstration that God loves us enough to die for us and that he saved us through the death of his own dear son. Friend, the cross, the cross is the means whereby you and I have been redeemed. It's where the Christ, where, where, where the price for the sins of the world was paid for. The cross is the means for the forgiveness of our sins. The cross is the means whereby our guilt is taken away. The cross is the means whereby we are justified, where God now accepts us as righteous and in sight. Friend, it means that His wrath through the cross has been taken away, and you and I now stand not just innocent before Him, we now stand righteous before God. Friend, you and I can boast about Christ crucified only if we renounce anything and everything that we think will save ourselves. Friend, the only thing, the only thing that you and I can stand on when it comes to standing before God is the cross of Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this, I realized there's really only two religious options out there. People who glory in themselves or people who glory in the cross. Right? To glory in the cross is to stop trusting in our church attendance, our worship style, our devotional habits, our social involvement, our theological orthodoxy, or the number of converts we may have gotten, and to start putting your trust and your trust alone in the merits of Jesus Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. Friend, the cross rejects any human attempt to please God. I love what one man wrote. He said, Sinners may be justified before God and by God, not because of any works of their own, but because of the atoning work of Christ. Not because of anything that they have done or could do, but because of what Christ did once when he died. And you know what Paul is saying in this letter right here as he closes it out? He's saying, Galatians, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make between circumcision and the cross. It's either one or the other, but it can never be both. And the cross is where Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For there's no way to boast about what we have done and what Christ has done at the same time. It's either one or the other. You're either going to boast in yourself or you're going to boast in Jesus Christ. Again, I love the writings of John Stott at this point. He says, the truth is that we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross simultaneously. 
If we boast in ourselves and in our ability to save ourselves, we shall never boast in the cross and in the ability of Christ crucified to save us. We have to choose. Only if we have humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners shall we give up boasting of ourselves, fly to the cross for salvation, and spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross. Now Paul goes on, and he says that when you begin to glory in the cross, when you begin to boast in the cross, he says you'll also begin to live Well, you'll begin to live a crucified life. And here's why. Look at verse 14. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, friend, I want you to listen. And I want you to listen very, very carefully. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ... We are personally joined to him. And we are the recipients of everything that he has done for us for our salvation. It's a doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. Christ is in the Christian, and here's the best part, and the Christian is in Christ. That means that you and I are united to Christ in his death. So that when Christ died on the cross, we were crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to us. Now again, listen very carefully. When Paul says that you and I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to us, He's talking about the godless values of the world. The hopeless pleasures of the present age. And what Paul is saying is this. The cross of Jesus Christ strikes a death blow to all of the worldliness that you and I struggle with. So that as Christians, we, we no longer have to think the way the world thinks. We no longer have to talk the way the world talks. We no longer have to misbehave the way the world misbehaves. Friend, you don't have to take comfort in the comforts the world has to offer. We no longer value what the world values. We no longer care what the world thinks about the things that they think are most important. Why? Because we have been crucified to the world we sang about it earlier i've been crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ now lives in me friends what what paul was talking about in the previous chapter as he closed it in verse 24 he said those who belong to christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires And you know what he's saying here? You don't have to live under the control and influence of the world. You don't have to live as a Christian under the influence and control of the flesh. Because your flesh, in a very real sense, and your 
desire to please the world, all of that was nailed to the cross. In other words, not only was our sinful nature crucified when Christ died on the cross, so also was the world. And hopefully as we grow in our walk with Jesus Christ, the world slowly loses its grip on us. You know, let's face it, the world is filled with all kinds of temptations, all kinds of appeals. But Paul says all of those things have been rendered powerless. See verse 15, he says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything to me. What counts is the new creation. And circumcision is meaningless. If we're in Christ, circumcision can do nothing to improve our standing before God. And if we're not in Christ, circumcision can do nothing to save us. It has nothing to do with Christianity. And when I talk about circumcision, I'm talking about all of the things that go with it. Again, people aren't promoting circumcision today. Let's face it. But they're promoting all kinds of other things as the means to get you to heaven. And what Paul is saying here is what counts is the new creation, namely that inward transformation that is ours when we trust Jesus Christ and positionally we are declared righteous. We move from being a sinner to being a saint. It's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, To those who follow this, notice what he says. He gives them a benediction of peace and blessing and mercy. Verse 16, he says, Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. And this benediction grants peace and mercy between the Jew and Gentile and mercy from God to both. And what he's saying here, I believe, is that the church and Israel share a common boast in the cross and the cross alone. And I love when Paul shows his humanity. Look at verse 17. He says, from now on, you know, I want this on the record. Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And that verse is a warning to Paul's enemies who had repeatedly caused him heartache. And Paul, as he ends this letter, says, I've had enough. I'm fed up with their nonsense. And he says, I want to warn you, you are now on notice. Don't cause me any more trouble or that church there. And Paul says, I've got the battle scars to prove it. And this statement is a warning to every Christian as to the kind of treatment you and I can expect when we boast in the cross of Christ. Friend, mark it down. When you go out of here and you you share the gospel, when you share the good news with people, you can expect persecution. It may not be physical persecution that Paul is talking about that he endured here. Paul himself was stoned. He was left for dead. He was thrown into prison. He was beaten. And all of that physical punishment that was inflicted upon Paul retained its marks on his body. He had the scars 
to prove it. And he says, because I have those scars, I'm placing you on notice. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. He ends the book by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers and sisters, amen. Friend, here's the takeaway. And we put it in your outline that's in the bulletin. Every Christian who has died with Christ must live for his cross. That's where we boast. That's the source of our encouragement. As I was thinking about this, I realized that nothing expresses this more eloquently than the words of a great hymn written by Isaac Watts in the 16th century. He wrote a hymn that's based on this closing paragraph in Galatians 6. And the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more precious this hymn has become. Isaac Watts wrote the following. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. (sighs) Watts wrote, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. He wrote, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? The last stanza of that marvelous hymn is the following. If you know it, sing it with me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my Father thank you for this marvelous book that has blessed us as we've looked at it together. Father, there's many, many truths that can serve as the takeaway from these six chapters. But I pray that as Paul closed this letter, what what he considered to be the most important of truths, I pray that we, like the Apostle Paul, would leave here boasting, bragging, about what is the most important thing in all the universe and in all of history, namely the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so I pray that you would motivate us towards that end to go out and share that message. And when, like the Apostle Paul, we find ourselves the object of ridicule and even persecution and scorn by other people who say, no, 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 I'm not a sinner. I don't need Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would be strong and bold and courageous, just as Paul was. And we pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with us in our spirit as we serve as brothers and sisters in Christ in the battle cause. We pray towards that end in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.